You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We think everybody's got a better life, and it's right on our phone, whereas it used to be keeping up with the Joneses. And the first thing I would just tell anyone who's feeling like everybody else's life is better than yours (laughs) is that, first of all, it's not true. If people knew how much pain everyone was living in, we would all be nicer to each other. Because the thing that I've learned, having you know been in the public world now for over two decades, is like, because people tell me their life stories, probably you too, right? People are in a lot of pain. Yeah. I think the average person is like Zoe or like this fictional 27-year-old who, who doesn't know what they want to do in their lives, and they think they've already failed because they're 27 and they haven't started on this incredible journey that they think is waiting for them, but they took the wrong fork and now it's too late. They think, they, 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 oh my God, they think it's, I wrote this book, Start Late, Finish Rich, to reach people over the age of 50 and who ended up reading it were 20 something, 25 to like 35. So they think that they're starting late. So often we create financial anxieties in our mind that are not true. Right, I agree with that. Because I've, I've spent the first nine years of my career as a financial advisor. Some people come into your office, they think they're in great financial shape and they're completely wrong, right? <laughs> like you actually look at their financial picture and you're like, mm, you're not actually in great shape at all. Other people come in and they think, I could never afford to retire. And you're like, yeah, you could actually retire today. Well, and that's the other thing too, is I think people think themselves into a hole. Like you can't, you can't actually think yourself to action. You have to act. Yeah, you know, people don't actually, like, people always ask me, what's the number? What's the number you need to retire? And my, so by the way, I'm talking to David Bach, uh, author of The Latte Factor, which we're going to talk all about. It's it's such a quick and easy read, and it's basically, uh, just like many of your other books, not... Not how to get rich. I don't like calling it that. Yeah. But this is a methodology that can be used and a philosophy that can be used to to essentially turn just about anybody into a millionaire, if that's your goal. But but that, that might be the wrong way to describe it. I don't even like using the word millionaire there. Even though your biggest selling book was called The Automatic Millionaire. We did a podcast about that, I think, in 2014. Like yeah, this, I think this that's is about, five I think years. That's right, before you, had, before you had the studios here, you know, yeah, in, no, in no, the no. comedy club that you now own a piece of, which Every, is super everything, cool. Everything, 100% of the things in my life have changed since our podcast. <laughs> which is, you know, I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear what you're up to, too. I mean, I, I know you're, I'm getting to be interviewed today, but um, 
you know, this is fun. Like th this book was totally different. This is the first, this is my 13th book. It's the first time I've written a book that was a story, right? Yeah. Like, this, is a, this is a parable. I, I tell everybody it's a story because not everybody knows what parables are anymore, but. Yeah, um, it, remind, it reminds me of that. What's that, um, the greatest salesman that ever lived? From Ag Mandino. Uh, yeah, it reminds me a little of that. Yeah, you know, I, I want, it, when you think of some of the books that have influenced my life, like Who Moved My Cheese by Spencer Johnson was just a great little business book. You could read it in 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, that kind of taught, like the importance of change, right? And Paulo Coelho was my hero. And he wrote the book, The Alchemist. He still is. Like, he's the writer I always... The Alchemist is such a great you know, book. I, I think it's the greatest book of all time. Do, um, do, do you find with Paulo, Paulo Coelho, uh, I don't... Some of his books... And I'm not being critical of Paulo. I hate critics and yeah, reviewers. Yeah, yeah. But just my own personal experience. I love The Alchemist. Like, let's say it's in my top 10 favorite books of all yeah, time. Yeah, that's how I am, But too. some of his books, I really don't like. Well, and you know what? Again, people written, he's written so many books, right? Yeah. And I haven't read all of his books. I've read I've read a handful of his books, but The Alchemist is like a sim seminal book, right? Yeah. And I always thought to myself, I want to write a financial. First of all, you you started in financial books too, so I know you're going to relate to what I'm about to say. Uh, this is my thirteenth financial book. It's actually my last financial book. I'm not going to write any more books on money. Good, good um, for you. And I I, I don't think you need to. I think you've, you've I've said done it. it. <laughs> I've done it. And there's seven million books out. And so you know why why did I do this book? It was because. 98% of people will never read a financial book. Yeah. So, so even though I've sold so many books, I know that most people won't read financial books. Well, including a, our kids, right? We have young kids. Yeah, my kids will never read one. And I have a I have a almost 16-year-old and these books have been stacked by his bed for like the last 5 years where I'm like, "Come on, Jack, read the book. Read the book." He never he would never read them. This book because it's a story, he read it on a plane flight home from a ski trip with me in less than 2 hours, turned to me this was like the best moment of this entire book process. He turned to me and goes, Dad, this is an amazing book. This is an amazing story. And then he oh, turns man, to the chart. So There's a chart in the back of the book. And he goes, you know, this chart, Dad, this one right here, you've seen this chart before, yeah. right? So that shows you the power of basically opening a $2,000 IRA account. And it shows a kid that starts at 19 and puts $2,000 a year away until the age of 26, never puts another dollar away. So they saved $5.41 from the age of 19 to the age of 26, never puts another dollar away. And by the time they reach 65, they have over a million dollars. And he, he turns to me on the airplane. I took a picture of this. He turns to me on the airplane flight and he goes, for, he goes Dad, is, is this real? Like, I know you explained it in the book how compound interest works, but is this, is this real? Because he goes, first of all, you need another chart because I'm 15. If I do this, I'm going to have like $2 million, right? And I go, yep. He goes, well, I can save $5.41 a day. Yeah, and also, and <laughs> if he makes a little bit more, he can save $3,000 a year until he's 29, and that makes a huge difference. Yeah. I, like, that's the amazing thing about compound interest. And this works, and you kind of allude to this in the book, uh, compound interest is an amazing thing because it, it's so obvious with money that, oh, if I put $1,000 in the bank and it gets so much interest a year, um, it's going to double every X number of years. And if you do this for 40 years, it doubles enough to make millions. So, so, and you know, you talk about this in all your books, uh, particularly, I think the, the automatic millionaire, it's a very important concept. Um, but in, in the latte factor, this book that we're discussing is a very important concept, but I like the idea of compound interest in life as well. And Completely. I feel like you allude to this in, in the book that if you, let's say like a hobby, and enjoy what you're doing and get 1% better a month at that hobby, 
you're going to be the greatest person in the world at that hobby in 20 years or 10 years. It's the compound effect. You know, people have always asked me, like, I've been on the road for two months with this book. And I just told you, you're, you're my last interview before I get ready to move to Florence, Italy. But I've done like hundreds of interviews, right? And I have been consistent about pushing my message every day for two solid decades. Right. And, 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 and people always, what, what's the secret? How did you do this? I'm like, there was no one secret. There was a thousand things that I've done over two decades. Right, and it, and it works because from my perspective, you were on Oprah quite a bit before before I was interested in the finance yeah. space or, or when I was not really fi- following personal finance. And I read your 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 books uh, to prepare for our 2014 podcast, and then I just read this one now. But I didn't. Re- I knew who you were without having seen you or read any of your books. Like you had built a brand by doing stuff every single day. You had compounded your brand and your message. And you know, we, before we went live, like we were talking about, like the importance of loving what you do, right? Because because you can't do anything consistently for 20 years. Yeah. If you don't absolutely freaking love it, like you said, like the reason you want to do these podcasts face to face is it's more fun for you. Yeah. And, and, and that's such a thing for young people, especially. I wrote this book to reach young people, to reach millennials, because so many millennials are giving up hope. They're coming out of school with, you know, tons of student loans. They've got credit card debt. They've started work, and work's not turning out to be as much fun as they thought it was going to be. And they're not seeing themselves get ahead financially. And they ask me for advice, and I'm like, first advice, I know it's a cliche, but like, to find something you love to do because life is short. All right, so, it so, goes by like this. Right. It's, and it, you've got to love your life. And if you don't, someone just went into my Facebook group a second, like about three hours ago and was like. Uh, was that I mean, an allusion to the fact that I'm three hours late? No, no, no. <laughs> wait, wait, like this is kind of giving me chills for a second because I, I, look, it's, I've got this huge insider group that helped promote this book, right? There's like 4,000 people that join my insider team. And we have a, face, a private Facebook community, which now these 3,000 people from that group are inside talking to each other. And it's become incredibly self-supportive. Like, I'm, I'm in there, but everybody's cheering oh, each other great. on. And this woman posted um, earlier today, she's 53. And she said, you know, I'm a teacher and I hate my, I hate, I hate being a teacher. I'm totally burnt out. If I work seven more years, I have a full pension. But I hate it. More or less is what she said. What do you think I should do? My, my, you know, everybody thinks I should work seven more years for the full pension. But I said, God, well, first of all, you know, we need teachers to come to school to be super inspired to teach our kids. And when you're a kid and you're being taught by a 53-year-old burnt-out teacher who hates their job, like, like that sucks. So, you know, think about it in two ways. One, you're doing those kids a disservice, but more, and then for you, be selfish. Like, you know what? You don't have to go put seven more years in just to have a pension. You, you've got to figure out what it is that's going to light you up. Now, I would, if I knew her personally, I'd like, there might be ways to, to light yourself back up being a teacher. But what happens is people get to these points in their life where they're burnt out and they think they just have to stay with it. Yeah, and, and, and it's like this sort of sunken cost fallacy. Completely, or or just the I should never give up. I like I, I can't give up. Like or, or and also they see an opportunity cost, which is in seven, this pension in seven years. But seven years is a long time. Seven, seven years is like what is that? That's like twenty three hundred days. Also, like one of the things I've been talking a lot about because I've been on the road on the tour, and I keep telling people, you know what? The next ten years of your life are your most important ten years, and let me tell you why. They're going to be the healthiest. Statistically, your next ten years in life are the healthiest. 
because most people don't get healthier later in life. So your next 10 years are going to be your healthiest. They're going to be the next 10 years with the most energy. And the next 10 years of your life, they really matter. So stop treating these decades mm. like... I see what you're saying. I, I missed it at first, but just to e explain, the next 10 years are the healthiest of the... Let's say I live to be another 40 years. The next 10, by definition, are going to be the healthiest of those 40. Absolutely. And I'm going to have the most energy in yep. those next 10 of those 40. So if I were thinking of... Uh, if I was thinking of wasting seven of these 10, that would be a horrible error. So I happen to be almost the same age as this woman. I'm 52. And, you know, most people try to retire in their 60s, and they hope to retire in their early 60s. And if you're lucky, you have a, a decade in your 60s where you're still healthy, you have energy, you have your spouse, you have your friends, you have your, you have your kids, the people you love are still around you, if you're lucky. Life goes down dramatically, quality-wise, health in your 70s. In your 80s, it's even lower. Like, we keep telling people you're going to live forever. I have a registered investment advisory firm. We have now, we started a business three years ago. We have, we just approached $8 billion under management. And all your clients died. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I'm out talking to retired clients all the time. And I tell them, look, there's, there's three stages to retirement. The first stage is the go-go stage. Like from 60 to 75, you got tons of energy, you got money, and now you've got time affluence. You can go do whatever you want to do. That's the best decade. The best 10 to 15 years is right then. Then from 75 to 85, it's the second decade. It's the slower go decade because your health starts to deteriorate. And then from 85 to 100, it's often the won't go decade, especially for men because it's the men who get sick first. Well, the audience, when I, when I do this for our clients, they really get it. Like they know it's true, right? They, 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 they see their lives change. Right, they can feel it. They, they feel it. And then they also see their friends who are in their 70s getting sicker. Like I, my dad's 79 and he's, his health's deteriorating like dramatically in the last two years. And my mom's still got tons of energy. How old is she? Um, she's 78, 77. Sorry, mom, if I'm getting your age wrong here right now. But she's coming to Florence. And like she just, before you got here, she was FaceTiming me. And she's like, I'm coming to Florence in like six weeks. Like she's meeting me in Florence. But my dad's not meeting me in Florence because he's walking around with a cane now and a walker. And, and they had a very robust retirement. But where I'm going with this is that 50s are her golden decade. You don't always have to wait until your 60s. There's a whole movement for people trying to retire early. Right. And, 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 and I, I'm sorry. I don't, go, go ahead. No, no. I'm, I'm an interrupter. So yeah, I, yeah, so no. And I I'm hear, also doing, I I'm the talk over you. But is this why you're moving to Florence in a few weeks? This is what, so why I'm picking up and moving to Florence at 52 is, uh, first of all, I, I, I don't want to assume that it's – I know how important this decade is. And I also want my kids to grow up and spend some time abroad. So I've got a 16-year-old son that was – this is going to be his sophomore year, and it was my last chance to take him abroad before he's got to buckle down for junior, senior year. And I said to my wife two years ago, let's go abroad. Where do you want to go anywhere in the world? Let's go abroad for a year. And as I think about this next decade very consciously, because after Florence, I want to go live in the mountains because I'm a big skier. And my wife said, well, what about the beach in California? And I was like, honey, we can live on the beach in our 70s. I don't know if I'll be skiing in my 70s. I know I can ski right now. So it's just about not taking what you have today for granted. I'm a big, so much of what I'm really teaching is about the spirituality of living a rich life. Having your I love you's in check. You know, making sure the people you love, they know that you love them. Letting, give, letting go of the pain that you've got or if you need to forgive someone and not waiting anymore. Like, okay, so let me. I know I'm going all over the place. No, 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 podcast. but <laughs> I, I like this philosophy 
I try to live by it myself. I know you do. What, what, what do you say to someone who's, well, like this woman, she's really stressed and anxious about her job. She, you know, the woman who's the teacher, she's, she, she feels like I've got to solve this job anxiety, this, which is related to money anxiety, which is related to retirement anxiety, career anxiety, maybe responsibility anxiety. Like she might have kids she's still raising and mortgages she's still paying and student loans she's still covering. So she's anxious about money and, and that's, you know, a, a serious, that's like having an illness. And she says, I can't even think about getting my I love yous in check. I, I got to figure this out. Yeah, well, so a person like her specifically, if she was sitting right here, um, first I'd say, let's, let's actually figure it out. Let's figure out, first of all, whether or not you even have a financial problem, right? Because so often we create financial anxieties in our mind that are not true. Right, I agree with that. Because I've, I've spent the first nine years of my career as a financial advisor. And, you know, people come in, some people come into your office, they think they're in great financial shape and they're completely wrong, right? <laughs> like you actually look at their financial picture and you're like, mm, you're not actually in great shape at all. Other people come in and they think I could never afford to retire. And you're like, yeah, you could actually retire today. So the first question is like, uh, you know, she really would need to go through, sit down with the financial planner, run her numbers and see really where she stands. Then the next question is, okay, well, how much would things really change if you worked three, four, five, six, seven more years? What are you giving up? What are your, you know, what kind of healthcare rights do you have with your job? What kind of pension would you really be giving? And then, then there's the whole spirituality of it. Why did you become a, like, I would go, like, there's the money over here, and then there's the real part of life, which is your soul. Like, like this, this book actually starts with Zoe Daniels downtown where I live, walking through the Oculus, and she's a 27-year-old millennial, and she sees this LCD screen that says, if you don't know where you're going, you might not like where you end up. That's what begins her spiritual journey in this book. That, that question, if you don't like where you're going, if you don't know where you're going, you might not like where you end up, you, you can ask that question at any age, right? So the person who's 53, she's asking herself this question right now. She doesn't like where she's going. And I would start with a question saying, how did you get here in the first place? What, why did you become a teacher? What, what did you, why did you become a teacher? What did you like about being a teacher? Before you started hating it, what did you like? What did you love? To try to see if it's something that she can actually recenter herself around spiritually in a place where it's like, well, I actually liked this and I actually liked that. Can you get that back? I don't know what our answers would be. Her answer could be, you know what? I can't get it back anymore. I hate the principal of my teacher. I hate the principal of our also, school. People just change. They, they're why changes. They're why changes or, or, or they've stopped growing. Like one of the things that happens a lot of times when people are, we know people who are really successful and they stop enjoying their success because they've, they've stopped growing. Yeah. And so if, if she's at a point where she can't grow more at what she's doing, first of all, it's usually not true, right? Usually there's always something that you can do to keep growing where you are. But if it's really not true that she can't keep growing where she is, then what else could she do to grow? What else could she do on the side? Right. So for instance, she, she can take her current pension. And by the way, all her costs will be reduced like on gas and lunches and you know clothes for work and so on. So she has a whole bunch of costs that are reduced, but also her pension's reduced. So, so, and then potentially she can find, well, I really love photography now. I could take a photography class for $2,000 and start making an extra 6,000 a year just doing weddings or whatever. Like there's, there's what? one, 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 once people have free time, if they're still energetic and creative, they're gonna fill up that free time. And if they wanna make money, that's, you know, I always tell people, give it a year 
Right. And you'll, if you love something, you'll figure out how to make money doing it. After about a year, year and a half, two years, but it'll be enough to to do well to make up what she's missing in the in the pension. But but I think that where where you were heading also is, in each case, you want her to to. She's got this. She's qualifying by saying, "I'm unhappy and I hate my job." But you want her to quantify by by saying, "Well, how are you measuring?" your happiness at this job and can we change this metric somehow? And you're also saying, let's also measure your actual financial health. Cause if it's not measurable, you can't make a decision. So, so I think you're very much about, and I agree with this. You're very much about let's, let's, let's measure things. Let's, let's, let's see what the numbers are because without that, it's just guesswork. Without that, it's just guesswork and you can't move what you can't measure. Like when, it, when you, when you look at how you like manage a company, you lead a business or a team, you have everything has to be measurable because you can't move what you can't measure and you also can't manage it. Right. And you know, those are the three M's manage, measure, and move. And you know, it's so, just, so, so tell me what does manage and move mean? Well, so this applies to anything in life, right? Like when you think about managing a company, um, it's, you have measurable goals, right? So once you've got measurable goals, you can lead your team and you can manage your team and that moves the dial forward. Whenever you see things that aren't, that aren't being moved successfully, it's because it's not being measured well. Right. You, I mean, you can apply this to anything, but 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 anything in life, like physical health, um, it's hard to do spiritually sometimes, but you could do physical, financial. Think about anything that you're trying to do in life. If you're not measuring it, it's very hard to move it. Well, you know, some things are hard to measure. Like, let's say you want to be a, a famous painter. Uh, it's hard to measure your skill acquisition there, but it's still possible. I think there are still metrics you can find and use, like just even if it's just ranking your joy with a painting from zero to 10 each time. uh, Or or measuring how much time are you spending on the art, Mm -hmm. right? But you're right. There are certain things that are hard to to measure, but like an artist, you know, I really want to be a professional artist. Okay. Well, how many hours would you have to put in to be a professional artist? I don't know, but I know this, that, that there are things that people want and they spend a lot of time talking about it. They don't actually do the work. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the other thing too, is I think people think themselves into a hole. Like you can't, you can't actually think yourself to action. You have to act. So, so for instance, for this teacher, she has to get her numbers in place and show you or so, show someone and present them. She has to take an action about her numbers, which could be done in a day. And then she knows she can list all the things she liked when she was 18 and see, oh, do these, any of these things light her fire store. She can go to a bookstore. She can go to a Coursera. She could listen to podcasts. Yeah. She could watch YouTube. I mean, the thing is we live in- She could also look into places that are cheaper to live. So instead of, let's say hypothetically, she lives in New York City. Instead of spending 7,000 for a two bedroom apartment, she can move 60 miles away and spend $2,000 for she, a two bedroom apartment. She could move to apartment. Florence, Italy and spend, you know, a third and live abroad, right? Like a lot of people- Florence, are, Italy, che- that much cheaper it's, than you? It, it, yeah, well, ask me about this in six months, but I can tell you our housing costs are going to drop by like in half. Um, yeah. And, you know, you live abroad, the health insurance for living abroad can be as, whatever we pay here a month is equal to that for a year. So- yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I think it will be a lot less. A lot of people are moving abroad to retire because it's cheaper. Um, but I mean, again, we're, I, I've never done a podcast where I'm so all over the place. But if you take this woman's, okay. you take this woman's story and you go back to Zoe Daniels in this book, Zoe Daniels was 27. At the end of the day, her problem was that she'd been she lives in Brooklyn and she's working in New York City, and for six years she keeps making more money and she's still broke. 
And she has a job that she actually loved in the beginning. It's not that dissimilar to this teacher, right? She's, she's working in publishing. She's working in the, I keep calling it the Freedom Tower. My wife says I can't call it the Freedom Tower because it's called One World Trade Center. But originally, they were going to call it the Freedom Tower. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, it's not called the Freedom Tower? I, I don't know. Call it the I, I still Tower. refer to it as the Freedom Tower. Steve, is it called the Freedom Tower? <laughs> I think people still call it the okay, Freedom good, Tower. Okay, good, because I call it the Freedom Tower. So she works in the Freedom Tower, and um, she works for a travel magazine. And, and in Zoe's case, she got into the travel magazine business because she wanted to travel. Now, the ironic thing is she's not traveling at all because she's working in the One World Trade Center and she works 50 hours a week and she writes about travel. She doesn't even have a passport in the beginning of the book. And so she starts looking at, you know, should she take another, a different job? Should she take a job uptown where we are right now and make so she can make more money so that hopefully she can start saving? And what she learns as she meets these mentors is that actually she makes plenty of money. She just needs to pay herself first. She needs to learn these three critical lessons to being wealthy. And then she learns from those three lessons that um, it's actually not about the money. It's about living rich now. And, you know, so... I think, that's, I think that's a critical thing that people don't realize. I think people conflate net worth with self-worth. And, and I know I've done it for many years in the past, and it just doesn't it doesn't work. If, in fact, if anything, your net worth will go up if you're if you focus on self worth first, which seems, which is hard for people to to grasp. Like you asking her first, what did you like about teaching? Is more about self worth than than money than net worth. And like if a twenty seven year old came to you, if Zoe came to you and said, "Look, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Is it too late for me to figure out what I want to do in my life?" What what would you say? Like how would you guide people to figuring out? You know, everybody thinks this myth that they have to have a single purpose. But what's, if someone just says to you simply, what should I do with my life? I don't know. I don't have my passion. What's like the first step they could take? You know, what's so interesting is that what you just asked me, there was an entire article about this, like two days ago in the paper that I read about specifically, it was a therapist here in New York who specializes in millennials. I don't know. Did you see this article? No. And so this article was written from a therapist who became, he's like, I didn't intend to become a millennial specialist. It's just all my clients have become, this is here in New York City, all my clients have become millennials. And they're all coming, and then he went through what the themes were of why these millennials were unhappy. And I found it fascinating because I wrote this book and I've been spending all this time reaching out to millennials. Um, What the ones he's working with that, their issue, their core issue that they're circling around over and over again is they're not sure what to do with their life. And and, and, Uh, and they're so overwhelmed. They're so overwhelmed with this issue of, I don't know if I chose the right thing. And I, you know, and they're spinning with this. Like there's, because, you know, you're on your phone and you see people living the good life. They're not acting. And I, you know, it's so, it's funny because, um, I think a lot of this is as a result of social media, but it's just life, right? The reality is because we can be on our phone, like apparently Instagram went down today for a couple hours yeah. and people were flipping out. Like, oh my God, oh my God, where's Instagram? Um, we think everybody's got a better life and it's right on our phone. Whereas it used to be keeping up with the Joneses was the person who drove up to you next to you at your house, right? Now now today the Joneses is all of our friends and our, on our phones and we think everybody's life is better than ours. And And the first thing I would just tell anyone who's feeling like, everybody else's life is better than yours, <laughs> is it, first of all, it's not true. Like, like if, if you actually realize, if, if people knew how much pain everyone was living in, we would all be nicer to each other. Because the thing that I've learned, having you know been in the public world now for 
over two decades is like, because people tell me their life stories, probably you too, right? People are in a lot of pain. Yeah. It, I think it, I think the average person is is like this, like Zoe or like this fictional 27-year-old who who doesn't know what they want to do in their lives and they think they've already failed because they're 27 and they haven't started on this incredible journey that they think is waiting for them, but they missed, they took a ro- the wrong fork and now it's too late. They, they, they think, they, oh my God, they think it's, I wrote this book, Start Late, Finish Rich, to reach people over the age of 50 and who ended up reading it were 20 year olds, 20 something, 20 to like 25 to like 35. That's they, smart because if you're teaching people to start late, imagine if you start when you're early. Yeah, so they think that they're starting late. So, uh, you know, I, I would say that like, like what's what I said is Zoe in the book, like first thing is you got to realize that if you're trading your time for money, we say, you know, trade your time for money. You're going to go work 50 hours a week or 40 hours a week. The first thing is you have to become financially selfish. So before we focus on whether or not your job is perfect or your career is perfect, let's just get serious today. You're going to go to work from nine o'clock to five o'clock and the first hour day of your income, you need to keep it. You need to use your job and your income to buy your freedom. And that's the first lesson that Zoe Daniels learns in the book is like, he doesn't tell her, oh, you can't drink your lattes. What he says to her is, are you saving anything? Are you keeping anything? And she's not. No, I like how, I like how um, you know, towards the end when she's kind of uh, using this, this advice, I won't, I won't give it away, but I like how it's not about giving up the extra frothy latte, if that's what gives you pleasure to do it. But she gives up, for instance, her seldom used gym membership. She gives up the premium cable channel she never watches. There's yeah. a lot, if you do a real audit of your life, and I, I noticed this at one point in an extreme way. I threw out everything I owned and just and lived you in had Airbnbs. That black little bag. Yeah, yeah. And I was able to see, oh, there are so many things I never needed that I was paying for. And it was really kind of refreshing to see the hundreds and hundreds of things that normally was just a routine cost in my life that were, didn't exist anymore. Well, by the way, so I, ta- I, I, I'm curious to you, I, I follow you too. So, like, when you did that, it had to be very freeing, right? Did yeah, you- yeah, but it, it was, I mean, it wasn't freeing in the sense that, oh my God, I have no responsibilities anymore. Like I was still working hard and, and working at everything I do. It just was freeing in the sense that I didn't have to worry about things like where am I, where are, what chairs should I buy or what blankets I should buy or how am I going to pay the electricity or and all that was taken care of by Airbnb. So all right. those costs were supposedly baked in to the Airbnb price, but not really, actually, because, you know, Airbnb is a competitive market. So it's cheaper than if you'd rented a similar place and paid for all these things. It was certainly cheaper than if you rent a place, buy all the furniture, you know, get all the channels, Wi-Fi, all that stuff. I, I was paying similar to what rent would be for a similar size place. So I was saving money. I just go to, I guess where I was going with this is that, um, you know, we... We, we make this money and we accumulate all this stuff and we think this stuff is all so important. And then all of a sudden you realize like, it's actually not that important at all. No. It's, it's, it, that, that's like when you, when you can get your stuff in a bag and then just go live and you're like, oh my God, I don't actually need all this. And my example of this, because I thought about you coming up here today, we're, we're, we sold our home and in two weeks we're putting, we're, we're going to Florence, Italy with each of us are carrying two bags. That's and great. So, so like we're putting the clothes that we're going to need and we each get two bags because we're bringing them on the plane and we're not shipping anything there. And we rented an apartment that's fully furnished. Perfect. And we don't need to do anything but bring two bags of clothes. Now, the crazy part is I have two things to do this weekend. Figure out what clothes I'm bringing and everything else is going into storage. Now, now here's what's fascinating. 
about that process, you start to ask yourself, well, am I going to even want this stuff in a year or two? Like, I'm going to store this stuff and we're going to come back. Are we going to, are we going to still want it? And then you realize like, none of this stuff actually even matters to me. (laughs) All the stuff that we're going to go and store, all the stuff that we accumulated, I'm just excited to be with my family and go have a year of experiences in Europe. And, and when we went through that process too, because that's a mind shift, you know, when we were first thinking of moving to Europe, um, my wife was like, well, so are we going to put all the stuff in a container and all of our furniture and our artwork? And like, what are we going to bring? I'm like, we're not bringing anything, honey, but some clothes. We're bringing us. We're bringing the family and we're going to go have experiences for a year. We're going to focus a year on traveling and experiences. Yeah, and I, I agree with that, like in the sense that I one thing I learned in, in my own process of this was that experiences are a lot more valuable than things. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. People would say to me, oh, it must be so freeing to get rid of everything. I missed things. And and people were like, didn't like that response. You're not supposed to be unhappy ever if you <laughs> if you take an approach that is supposed to be, you know, enlightening yeah. somehow. So, but like, no, I liked missing things. Yes, I had some photos of my kids as babies that were actual real photos instead of digital ones. Right. I had photos of me as a baby or a kid and my parents. And I didn't have these things anymore. I missed them. But it's okay to miss things. It's a, Melancholy is, is a normal human. Totally. And, you know, nostalgia is a normal human emotion. So if we try to protect ourselves from everything negative, what's going to happen when something really bad actually happens? Like, I was living a great life. Like, why do I have to worry about yeah. these photos? I can miss them, and that sucks, but I still have a good life. It doesn't subtract from my life. I... I, I I, I so get it. I mean, I, I've been in New York 18 years, and I'm getting emotional about moving. Like, I wanted—this was a dream to move to New York City. I'm from San Francisco, and I came here to write, you know, to spread the message of these books, and and it worked, right? Like, I came—I came, I was the classic example. I came to New York to do national media. I knew if I was going to really, like, really change millions of people's lives, I had to be in New York City. That was true back then. Like, I could go on the Today Show, could go on all CNN, all the morning shows— that's what helped me build this platform. It was before the days of podcasts. Yeah, and, and as you YouTube. mentioned, you've sold 7 million copies of your books, which is really enormous. Like that in today's day and age is almost impossible. Yeah. Like maybe one person, not counting fiction, but like maybe one self-help person will be able to do it every couple of years. And it's rare to do it, for, honestly, for do it for, for 20 years, yeah. right? Like Smart Women Finish Rich came out for an updated edition, 20-year anniversary edition. That book sold a million copies. It's selling more this year than it sold 10 years ago. Your, your first book was like 1996? 19, Smart Women Finish Rich came out in 1998. Okay. 
Um, and then Smart Couples finished, which came out after that. And that also just came out for an anniversary edition. Then we did The Automatic Millionaire. That came out in 2004. That book just came out for an anniversary and, edition. And what do you think, like, obviously there were other people writing then about finance. I think Susie Orman, Dave yeah. Ramsey. Um, I wasn't really, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with that space then. But uh, what do you think attracted people to your your first couple of books that really kind of propelled you you know, hey, Oprah, Oprah saying, come over here. Yeah, well, I mean, I think what was very unique when I started my first my first book, first of all, Smart Women Finish Rich, um, the book was unique in the fact that I taught people the process that I used as a financial advisor, which was value-driven, about meaning that your financial life should actually be created based off your values. So not value investing, but like your personal values. Like a really good financial planner, if they do their job right, before today, they call it holistic based planning. Back then, I just called it values based planning, purpose focused financial planning. You need to look at what what do you value most in life, what are your dreams, and build your financial life so that they they match up, so that you're not spending money in conflict with your values. You're investing money that aligns with your values, and that whole concept of like spiritually awakening your awakening yourself to what really matters most to you. I think that that's really what resonated with people. And then I chunked it down in a way with stories and simplicity that got people to take action. You know, like simple things like you basically need three, I call it a three basket approach. You had a, a basket for retirement and then you had a basket for security and then you had a basket for your dreams. And so I think this, I think the simplifying is what attracted people, uh, you know, because everybody thinks, you know, we, we grew up thinking, oh my gosh, to be a millionaire, that's incredible. Like that would be the most amazing thing. But there's no path. We were never taught a path to get there. And I think you showed, hey, if you just do this little bit of math, it's actually fairly straightforward, the path. One, a path. There's many paths. You're, you give a path. Completely. And like 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 this little book, The Latte Factor, basically this is what should, should have been taught in school by the time you got through like 10th grade. Right, like even the simple idea of like the latte factor was originally like, look, if you cut out a five dollar latte, if you don't think you have the money and you took five dollars and you invested it, and you start in your twenties, by the time you're in your sixties, you could have over a million dollars. Right. So, so and it was just a little idea. It was like, or it could be bottled water. So, so let's do the math. So, so five dollars every day is like uh, eighteen hundred and twenty five dollars a year. Uh, and compounding at 10%. And, it, it, and here's it, the, the exact math in the back of the book is, you know, this little picture we've got here. It's like, you know, if you invest $5 a day and we rounded everything here, but it's like $5 a day is $35 a week. Um, in 40 years, and I use 10% because that's what the market's averaged since 1926, that would be worth $948,611. And, and then I show you other forms of math, right? Like, what if you did $10 a day? What if you did $10 a day, $300 a month, and you start at the age of 25? $10 a day by the time you're 65 could be worth $1,913,000. Like this little chart right here is worth the whole price of the book. Just showing like the, ma the miracle of compound interest and then what happens if you wait. Right. And I think, I think that the beauty of that is too, is it's not so much the specific numbers. Like you and I can sit here and argue for six hours about, is it 10%? Completely. Is it 4%? Is it 5%? Plug in whatever number you you believe in, and then figure it out. Or, or and that's why we give we also give you all these different rates of return, and we tell you and like and like the, her mentor says, look, you know, here's where ten percent could come from, but it could be five percent. Or what what happens is the, here's why people don't do these things because because there's all kinds of critics of this. Like 
person go, well, a million dollars won't be worth a lot of money in 40 years. Well, it will be worth a lot more than zero, right? right. Like, and also, like, also unclear, right? Like w- wages versus, in, you know, in, inflation's been going down. I kind of think actually right now, I could be wrong, but I kind of think if you really dig on the numbers, it looks like more deflation than inflation in the economy to me. But certainly wages have been going down and, and a versus inflation. So that will eventually lead to some kind of deflation. It's unclear to me that, you know, inflation spiked when we went over the gold, off yeah. the gold standard, it spiked for two decades. I don't know, with with the internet and, and new forms of productivity, it's unclear to me that inflation's not just going to be zero for, for the next 40 years. I mean, when, when you go off on the on the, the tangent of inflation issue, the, the, the two things that are out of control, cost of education and healthcare. Right, so... Those so, are our two primary forms of inflation. Right, so, so cost of education is higher education. And, yes, 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 and, yes, and, college. We're specifically, I know you've ripped on college costs. Uh, right, me right. too, like... It's arguably the biggest scam that's ever been perpetuated on the American public is the cost of a college education. Right, and and right now, and this goes, this number goes up every year. Forty-four percent of college graduates take jobs after college that do not require a college degree, and ninety-four percent of all new jobs created in this economy are not employee jobs; they're just contractor jobs with no insurance and no other benefits. So presumably, they're just about the skills they want you to. They're contracting you to do some skill work. And you don't need a college degree for that, or for most of those probably. So I don't know. I'm not. I, if if it puts you in financial danger, which it clearly does, like Zoe starts off with student loan debt, and she's yeah. not. You know, it's hard thing. It's hard. I have people when I'm doing stand up downstairs. Sometimes I fool around and I ask people like who, you know, there'll be someone in the audience who's quitting, wants to quit being a lawyer, and I'm like, what's your total student loan debt? Oh, three hundred sixty-three thousand dollars. Because if you uh, the average student loan debt's much lower, but if you go to like a good four-year school and then a good three-year law school, you're going to be over three hundred thousand dollars in debt. You're screwed. We had somebody post this on our Facebook group yesterday: three hundred thirty thousand dollars in student loans. And and I thought to myself, God, there's so much money borrowed on an asset that you can't hope's going to go up in value and trade, right? Like I literally was thinking about real estate. Like you borrow three hundred thousand dollars in real estate, you put down a hundred and you buy a four hundred thousand dollar piece of property. Ten years from now, you're pretty likely that property would be worth more and you can just sell it and pay off the loan and you've made the profit, right? Like that's why when you borrow money to buy assets that go up in value, you have the ability to get rich. The problem when you borrow money to buy anything that goes down in value is you start off in a hole. So the, 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 the belief was always, well, you go get a college education, you'll make more money. And so it's worth it. So 10, people used to use these formulas, like it's worth 10 times what you, what you borrowed. Well, that used to be true. It's a completely different society. Right, today. it used to be true. And, and um, Georgetown did this one kind of seminal study on this where they said, oh, if you get a college degree, you'll make this much more than if you just have a high school degree. But they're using data from people who graduated when we graduated because that's the only data you have where you can see, oh, where were they 20 to 30 years later? There's no other data. And the, the job, first off, the internet wasn't main. The web didn't exist when we graduated college. The internet wasn't mainstream. Productivity still required human hands doing many jobs, which no longer those jobs don't even exist anymore. So the data is is so wrong that I can't stand these studies. And of course, they're always put out by colleges who charge super high tuitions. I just you know I go back to what I want people to do is buy their freedom. At the end of the day, like. Uh, Zoe learns how to buy her freedom and put herself first. And I think, you know, when people start to like tell you why things won't work, like 
Saving small amounts of money won't work. It's the government's fault that you're poor. Look, here's the reality. Six out of 10 Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. Yeah. I've been doing these shows and I've been saying, you know what? If you save $10, I did the breakfast club. We were just talking about uh, those guys. I said, if you save $10 a day for 100 days, just think about this for one second. You save $10 a day for 100 days. It's a little over three months. You're now wealthier than six out of 10 Americans. So- you know, it's interesting though, but I think like I was talking to someone the other day who was a chain hoist technician. So if there's a big event at a stadium. He runs a device that lifts up big things mm-hmm. like a speaker and puts them on the stage. And he does this like 11 hours a day. And his wife is a waitress at a fine dining establishment. So two incomes, they have two kids. Uh, he was telling me though, two out of the seven days a week, they're, they're at zero in their bank account. <laughs> So some people just aren't making enough money to make ends meet. And he's not living in a city. He's living in a suburb of Dallas. So I think also because wages have been going down for young people versus inflation, some people really are having a hard time with that $10 a day. Some, there, there is absolutely no question that some people um, aren't receiving a living wage, right? Like I had somebody the other day say, well, what if I'm making $20,000 a year? Does, will this work for me? I'm like, man, if you're making $20,000 a year, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how you're going to save $5 a day if you're making $20,000 a year. But why are you making $20,000 a year, right? Like right, so, okay, so this there's got to be something else you could do. So this but, goes back to the 27-year-old who wants to know, well, what can I do? Am I too late? What, what's the first thing that person should do? I, I, the first thing that person should do is, number one, if you got a job, you have to pay yourself first one hour a day of your income. But what job should they take? They don't know oh, what they want to do. Well, most of these kids are already working. I'd, go get a job. Go to work. Like, like you're not going to have your dream job be your first job, right? So, so if you're 27... Probably you're already working. Now, the question is where you're working, are you able to learn something at what you do that can make you better? Are, if, if you spend a That's year a point massively focused on how do you add more value where you are and are you learning something, then that's a great year, right? It, it, the problem is when you have a job where, where here's what happens to people. They, they end up working somewhere where they have, the number one reason people hate their jobs, by the way, is because they hate their boss. So if you have a toxic boss, that's a core problem, right? Like if you're That's listening right to know, now, by the way, see again, measurement is everything because <laughs> that tells you for half the people you talk to, it says, oh, I hate my job. Okay, take the same job, a different boss. Right, because, and, and literally when you look at even why people retire, in general, if they retire in their 50s, it's because they, they got, they're working somewhere, they may like where they're working, but at some point someone got above them in management and they just can't stand that person anymore. And as they get older, as, as we get older, our tolerance for bullshit reduces. <laughs> so there's like, you know, you can put up with a lot of pain when you're young. It's just like you have, it's true. Like you, you're, you know, you're hungry, you're driven. You, you can put up with stuff and you should, quite frankly, you get older, you, a lot of times you don't have that same ability, right? So, which it, this tends to be when you talk to people who retire early and you go, why'd you retire early? Oh man, I just got tired of this guy who was, you know, I, I, uh, the politics, a lot of times I say the politics. In general, it's because something stopped being fun. So work's not meant to be fun every day. That's why it's called work. But man, in your 20s, you should be focused on what can you learn in the next 10 years that can make you better at what you do. Yeah, and I, and I think also what, you know, in general, the percentage of your day doing things you hate should go down over time. <laughs> it doesn't have to be eliminated. Just the direction has to be in, in good shape. 
again, don't take more time from things. Don't, don't take more time from things you love to do more of things you hate. I think it's very important. But I want to go through. Yeah. Your, your, is it okay to mention yeah, totally. the three secrets of financial freedom? And then and then there's also the 16 rules uh, or the 16, yeah, the 16 rules of financial health on davidbach.com, which I think is fascinating. But let's go through this first. One is pay yourself first, which you talked about. And you could, and this is related to number two. So I'll go right into number two. Don't budget, make it automatic. Because if you're the one who has to kind of write a check to your special savings account, you're going to do it for three weeks, just like a gym membership. You're going to do it for three weeks and then you're going to stop. So if it's automatically deducted from your paycheck and put into a 401k, then that's, you don't even think about it. You start thinking of your salary. People live according to what they get in in the bank. And, and, and if you don't think about it, cause it's already in your 401k, it's like automatically being saved. Right. Your whole point there is that the interest starts compounding pretty fast. One could argue with the 10%. I'm conservative. I use 4%, mm -hmm. but doesn't matter. I All day long, you can get 4%. Absolutely. No question. No brainer. Right. Oh, just municipal bonds. Yeah. yeah totally. You get 4%. 5% so right now. I, <laughs> I, I feel like, I feel like I'm just off at say 10%. You're right. That's the historical performance of the stock market. But if you, the year you retire is 2008, you're suddenly 50% down. Yeah. You're going to have to wait a few more years to retire, whereas municipal bonds are, are steady. So it depends on how steady you want it to be. And, you know, there's more risk for more reward. Totally. Um, and then your third secret, which is, of course, the most important, is live rich now. And I think, I think people underestimate their current lifestyle, meaning your current lifestyle is probably pretty good in... America. Right. So, so the question you have to ask is, well, what if I didn't have a job, but I wanted to maintain this current lifestyle? So, so let's say you're making 60,000 a year. You live in Kansas city. Your take home is what? 40,000, 45,000. So you're living on roughly, I don't know what that is. 3,800 or 3,700 a month. Uh, uh, or let's just say 45,000 a year. And you kind of then only need half a million dollars to retire because on your thing with 10%, you need, and if inflation's minimal, you need a half a million dollars to retire. And I say only, but but that might not be so hard to to save by the time you're thirty. You could retire for thirty if that's your numbers. So he, so what you just said is so dead on. Um, there, there's two parts to live rich, but let me first fo focus on what you just said because it's ironic because you said Kansas, because the financial service company that I'm a co-founder of is based in Topeka. So we have 550 employees at that at that headquarter office mostly millennials. Here's what's so fascinating, James, because we're here in New York City, right? It's so freaking expensive. Yeah, 50000 could be a monthly expense instead of a salary. You know, like, so, but like, it's really hard to have a lot of the American dream things when you live in an expensive city, like buying a home. And I know you're not a big home buying guy, but, um, you know, a lot of people want to buy homes. They want to get married. They want to have kids. Hard to do in a big city like, like Manhattan or Chicago or yeah. LA when you're young. In Topeka, like when I spoke to our, our employees and I'm like, how many of you guys own a home? Like 80% of the room owns a home in their, and they're in their 20s. And that's because you can buy homes in Topeka for less than $100,000. Yeah. It, and, 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 and also they're most, many of them are married and having kids. They're, they're actually living in a way the American dream, like the American dream was lived 20, 30, 40 years ago because it's affordable. And there's a movement now across America that a lot of millennials are starting to move to these Midwest cities because they're realizing I can't actually have the things I want right now living in a city like Manhattan. Well, and also quality of life 
you could say, well, I don't want to live in Topeka, Kansas, but I bet you with all the millennials moving there and, 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 and you know, culture is moving into all these places as well. Totally. Like, uh, you know, I used to, I went to grad school in, in Pittsburgh and they had great museums, great theater. There was no Pittsburgh's problems. Booming. Yeah. So in, I think every city or area will, like your company is based in Topeka and 500 young people who are interested in things other than corn live there. So, <laughs> right. so, so that's why like this, you could live rich now. That's true both financially and in a psychological way. So you kind of mean in a psychological way, like, Hey, do the focus on the things you love, really measure what makes you happy and what doesn't. You could probably make a lot of choices that you that are unsuspecting to you right now that will lead to a happier life. But I mean, and also financially, uh, you could kind of calculate okay, I, I like my current lifestyle. Here's exactly what I would need to retire with this lifestyle. Maybe I'm going to amp it up a little bit. All right, let's add a little bit to what I need to retire to get that 10% to how I'm going to amp up my lifestyle. And I think people overthink this. Well, and I also think it's too, when you start to focus on retirement, you're focusing on being done. I think part of living rich, there's these two buckets. You've got a retirement bucket, basket, I call it, where you're putting money away for retirement. Well, that could be 40 years from now. Between now and 40 years, you got all the stuff you want to do. Like Zoe in the book, she wants to travel. She wants to live abroad. And so her mentor, Henry, says, well, you need to have a travel abroad account. And he teaches her to save money automatically for her dream account, which is what pays for her to take time to go live abroad. And in her case, she works out a deal with her. I don't want to give the whole story away, but she learns how to take this six-week break. And she works it out with her boss and she takes a sabbatical, and which is a huge thing that young people want to do today. And also older people want to do it too. And I think when you learn how to take breaks, where you, which you don't have to make a bunch of money to take a break, um, a person who's listening to this right now who says, you know what, I want, to, I, want to, I want to take two or three weeks off next year. Chances are, if you've got an ordinary income, you could save enough money to take two or three weeks off next year. Average American takes five days a year off. Right, and I think, to, to your point, I bet you you can also take six weeks off a year. You just don't have to, like I think the idea of the traditional job where you only have a two week vacation is going away because like, like I mentioned earlier, 94% of jobs being created today in this economy uh, are contractor jobs. You don't even yeah. have vacation. So you make your vacation. You, you, you probably make a little bit more money because you have to take care of your benefits, but you could use some of that money to uh, have your 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 uh, travel bucket. And you have to, it's so funny, you have to choose to live rich, right? So I took an Uber up here. We were talking about how bad the traffic was. And I, I love talking to people. I'm, a, I'm That's how I am. And I start talking to the Uber guy. His name is Ralph. And he's like, and he hears me on the phone saying, I'm going to go do this podcast. Oh, what book are, what book are you going to talk? And I, I've got the book in the back of the car with him. And so I start telling him about the book and I start asking him about how long have you driven for Uber? And he's like, I've driven for Uber for four years. And, and I, you know, I go, well, is, you know, is, is today going to be a good day for you? And he goes, every day is a good day. He's like, he's like, there's always money to be made driving Uber. He's like, I, I go, do you drive full time? He goes, he goes, yeah. I go, do you just use Uber? He's like, no, I use Uber and I use Lyft and somebody else he used. And he goes, cause then I'm, I'm busy all day long. And so I said, and I had already signed, I go, I'm going to give you a book. He's like, I'm not all buy a book. I know I'm going to give you a book. So I came with three, you know, there's two here. I gave him one. So I signed it to him and I said, um, live rich now enjoy your life fully. And I sign it. And he doesn't know that that's what I signed. And I said to him, so tomorrow, 4th of July, is that, is that a good day? Are you working tomorrow? Because I'm never in New York City normally on the 4th of July, and I am tomorrow. And he says, um, no, I'm not going to work tomorrow. He goes, I'm going to enjoy 
I'm going to enjoy my life tomorrow. I'm going to have, and he said, and this is what he said. He goes, David, I could work every single day of the year. I'm self-employed, but I have to enjoy my life. He's like, I know too many people that never enjoy their life and then they're dead. This is what he says to me, which is basically the core of this book. Yeah. And he goes, no, so tomorrow I'm not working. I'm enjoying my life. You know, and as I was reading this too, I was, I was thinking of, you know, the time I, and I'm sure everybody thinks of different things, but I think about the time I spend with my children and, you know, we're that kind of special period where you can have good, you know, sort of adult friendships with your children. Yeah. It's only a short period because soon I'm either too old or they're off starting families. Yep. And, you know, you can't, you can't waste any of that. Like I work really hard, but I have to sometimes remind myself, you got to also focus on things that are super important that you're not going to regret later. And and everybody says, oh, I have no regrets. Else I wouldn't be where I am today. But as your grandmother tells you, there's there's regrets in life. And it's not so much the regrets themselves. It's why you have these regrets. It's how you spent your time as opposed to the specific things you regretted, kind of what the root causes of those regrets were. You know, that's interesting. But, you know, it's so interesting because I love this topic and I'm particularly on your 16, this is your 16 financial rules uh, on your website. Uh, it's fascinating. There's so many things I agree with. And so many things I would love to argue with you about. I know not, we said we, the, we, we, said we would of, argue, right? Like, not not for the sake of winning. I just yeah, want to. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. Like you know, we 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 could spend our time on inflation. We could spend our time on the ten percent versus four percent. We could spend our time on home ownership or college. But the reality is, everyone out there could eliminate expenses. Everyone out there can make choices about what they're doing. It, right now, they're kind of. I think people are programmed. Conscious choices. Yeah. People are programmed since elementary school. I got to go to this school and I got to go get this kind of job. And then they're 30 and they're unhappy and miserable and $300,000 in debt. So I think taking control of things you can measure, like in some way, try to measure your happiness in some way, try to measure job satisfaction, salary, really get an accurate picture about what you need to have the lifestyle you want. See, look at the globe, see if there's any, places in the world where you can actually have that lifestyle without spending as much money. You know, money is a, a fluid imaginary concept. So what you need in Lisbon, Portugal is different than what you need in New York city, New York. So, and you know, you mentioned Zoe goes on a sabbatical. She also could be working remotely. Like this is a new right. world. This, and she does work remotely too. Right. Like, so, so this is, this is the thing too, is that, oh, I'm going to quit my job, quit that cubicle. Well, it doesn't mean you're stopping working. There's a billion remote jobs you could be doing in, in this world. There are websites now just built just for that. Yeah. Meaning, meaning like networks and organizations that can help you work remotely all over the world. Well, do, do you ever, have you ever used like Fiverr or Yeah, yeah totally. What, what have you used Fiverr for? So funny enough, we used Fiverr um, to do latte factor, like fun billboards, right? Like, so oh. like we had a jet, I'll say like we had a jet that comes down and it's got don't buy stupid shit.com on it. And it's got a picture of the latte factor book cover on the, on the jet. People thought I actually had this jet made. I'm like, no, no, it was cost me $12 on Fiverr. Where'd you, where on Fiverr did it? Oh, I'm, you know, I went to, we did like, we had everything. We had, we had the, um, the balloon with the, we had a, we had a big balloon blown up with the cover on it. We had billboards made. Um, you know, you just, anything you want. I don't know. Is Fiverr a sponsor of you guys? No, no, no. Oh, I wish it was. We should get Fiverr a sponsor. Anything you want done, you can go into Fiverr and find it. Uh, can I tell you what the last thing I did on Fiverr? Yeah. So I, I think it cost me about $25 and I had someone, uh, like a graduate student in English, I had someone rewrite 
from beginning to end, but making every word a synonym instead of using the actual word, Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> so I took the best-selling book in history and I had them write a new version with no plagiarizing scanner can figure it out because it's all synonyms. <laughs> so no words are the same. And you did that for $25? On Fiverr, yeah. And and I have read that uh, using all synonyms is plagiarizing. Yeah. But I'm still debating publishing this book just for fun, you know, under a fake name and seeing what happens. That's hilarious. But like with Fiverr, A, somebody did this in like a week. And yeah, they only made $25, but I forget, they weren't from this country. I forget what country they were from, like Singapore or yeah. Malaysia or something like that. And, and uh, uh, B, you can keep doing things to to maybe something you do makes money that you that you build out of Fiverr what or do you, freelancer. I'm curious, like for you, what are you enjoying the most right now? Because you've got, you've got the podcast, you've got your comedy that you're going to do a comedy show here tonight. You own a piece of this business. Like what, yeah. what, I know you've got your newsletter, right? Like you're doing a bunch of different things. What, so, what's For you, what's the most fun? So, so there's a thing that I make money on and there's the things I have the most fun on. And there's some overlap. I don't hate anything I do. I do. And all the things... I love doing, I don't love them 100%. Like they're difficult to prepare and you know, writing, sometimes you have writer's block and comedy, sometimes you you bomb on stage. But I love it, uh, comedy, podcast, writing, not necessarily in that order, they mm -hmm. all kind of are c connected. And I just love them. And I, and I don't make any money at any of them and I love it. And then I make my main income from investing because as you say, you know, you better to own than to rent. Now you're talking about houses. Yeah. For me, I'm talking about, I like to own pieces of, of businesses of, of businesses that are but, good companies. I totally believe in too. I mean, I, the whole key is to own, put your money in things that make you more money. Yeah. I think, I think money has, it's a cliche of money has to work for you. It yeah. either has to, it, it, the word spend is important. You either have to, you have to, you have to always spend money on things that get you more money or, or, or get you valuable experiences or you spend time on things that get you greater pleasure out of the time you have in front of you. So, so the word spend is very important to me. But then I, I don't love as much the investing and, and my business, like the newsletter business and so on, but it, it makes a living. It helps people. Uh, I feel happy with the businesses I'm invested in are all, I have values. So I've, I invest according to my values and, and uh, you know, I try to make sure each who who is being helped by each business, and that's a good way to qualify if it's a mm -hmm. good business or not. And do you, now, are you still actively investing out of curiosity in new businesses, or are you sort of shut down on taking on new things? Uh, I would say, uh, like in two from two thousand nine or from two thousand seven to two thousand eleven, I was investing, making a lot of angel investments. Mm -hmm. um, now it's about one a year. Yeah, it's got to be like really great. I have to get a good deal. It's got to be like I'm taking as little risk as possible. I don't. I don't believe that investing is the same as risk taking. So yeah. I, I believe you. You. You mitigate the risks in order to become a better investor. So, like for instance, you wouldn't buy a home. You wouldn't buy five homes in Detroit right now because you'd have to understand a little bit of is Detroit going to come back as a city? Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But maybe you would buy five homes spread out all over the world in countries where the GDP is having double digit growth. Maybe that's a less risky investment than buying all five homes in Detroit. So you, you take risk out of, of your investments, but you obviously, but you want the same kind of returns. Yeah. So there's ways to do that with diversification. So, uh, so look, I firmly think people should read this. I love the story. I love the allegory. I like, you know, 
we haven't talked about Henry, but he's kind of like, you know, the, what was that, uh, what was that Stephen Pressfield novel? Oh, the Legend of Bagger Vance. He's yes. sort of like this Bagger yes. Vance kind of character. And um, he's he's clearly made the dream and is really is really happy. And you, you see that right from the beginning, so I'm not, I'm not giving away any spoilers. Uh, great story, great concepts. Again, I think you and I would have a fun time talking about the specifics, and I think that can get really in the weeds and it would be, it would be more, it would be fun and informative, but I conceptually believe everything like, yeah, compounding is important. I think savings are tricky because another thing you can do is just make more money. So like if you're right. in, in an industry where like, if you're an entrepreneur and you know, you want to be an entrepreneur, you don't necessarily need to save every day because at some point you'll start, you'll get better and better as an entrepreneur. At some point you'll start a business that will dwarf what you would have saved. Here, here's a challenge for entrepreneurs, though, because I've I am one. I've been one almost my entire life, really. And I'm in a group. I've been in a group here called EO Entrepreneurs Organization for like 17 of my 18 years in New York. I just did a keynote for them, all like a going away keynote. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs bet on the come that they're going to sell their business someday, and yes. and then their business is not saleable, and they never get their exit, and their business doesn't work out. And then they have no money and they're 50. And I, I said to these entrepreneurs, you know, and there were young, there's now younger entrepreneurs. I started in EO when I was young, right? 30 years old. I said, listen, there's three ways to have wealth as an entrepreneur. One, money comes in, you got to keep some of that money and turn it into an asset that makes other money. So money comes in, it's got to go either into a retirement account. Two, you should buy another asset like real estate that you then rent your business should rent back the real estate. That's the second leg. And then the third leg is you have an exit. But too many of you are just counting on the exit. And the biggest problem, biggest problem with entrepreneurs is that they get these accountants that are teaching them how to always run their expenses through their business. So I've had lots of friends here in New York, they're making 200, then they're making 300, then they're making 400, then they're making 500, but they keep growing their lifestyle and running all their expenses through the business. So at the end of the year, the accountant goes, hey, you have no taxes. And I go, and that's great, which means you're still broke. Yeah. Right, because if you didn't pay any taxes, it means that you didn't save any money. And Unless you're I, Warren Buffett, who it, doesn't pay it, any taxes, but it's worth eighty billion. But because he's got a holding company, yeah, right. So, I just you know implore self-employed people to don't believe you if you're gonna you're gonna someday make more money, make more money, make more money, and be rich unless you keep some of that money. Well, well, I agree with you. Like some some of my angel investing is a different beast than stock market investing, and people don't really realize that. Like if you're invested in a good private company, you're probably going to be in that investment for at least 10 years. It's got to grow. At it's got to mature. At least, right? At Seven least. to 10 years. And then most of the time, the money doesn't come back. I'll, of the 20 companies I'm invested in, four of that exits and 16 are in their 10th year. of or, And out of, know, of the no 16, how many do you think will come back? Well, I think they, they, they all will. And I'll tell you why. Because when you're the other thing about angel investing is your bad companies disappear. Your bad investments disappear in a year or two. So yeah. a bad company is just going to die. Uh, a good company, if they're around 10 years, they, they, they're over the hump probably. But the problem is then it's like your, the, the third challenge, which that you mentioned is you gotta, and I try to make sure of this before I invest, the CEO has to know how to exit. That's a skill. And not all entrepreneurs have that skill and not all entrepreneurs even, that's like what Donald Rumsfeld would call an unknown unknown. <laughs> like, 
not all entrepreneurs n know that they need to have this skill in order to make money. And it's a different skill than all the other skills of entrepreneurship. And, and some businesses are built to be exited before the business is built, right? Like literally some entrepreneurs go into businesses saying, I'm going to build this to sell it to this company. I just had this conversation yesterday with a friend of mine last night after many drinks uh, who's building one of these businesses. And I'm like, and I gave him an example. You won't remember this company, but back in 2000 and and back in 2000, um, there's a thing called demo, right? Where you're, you're a tech company and you demo your companies. And so I, this, was, this was demo in San Francisco. And our booth was next to another booth with a company called Half.com. Oh, I remember Half.com. They okay. bought a city. Yeah. I, I, the, the guy who, Josh something. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, I met that guy once in California. So, so, you know, you have time between your booths. Hey, what do you guys do? They were just launching. He goes, and basically goes, I'm building this company and I'm going to sell it to Amazon. I mean, like he, like he's like, we're gonna get all these things on. I don't. We're gonna have all these company, all these products, and then we're selling them for half price. But I'm basically, he knew he was building a business to sell it to Amazon, and he did, right? And he did, or, or did he sell it to eBay? Um, now I can't remember. We're right. It was either but like for four hundred million. Yep, like exactly. Yeah. I think it was five, even four, eight years. I mean, I think you're right. I think it was eBay. I th and I, so I'm telling the story. He knew who he was going to sell the sell to. Like we should go back and look. Yeah. And I don't know whatever happened to that company, but he was like, and he did it quickly. Yeah. And I was like, man. But that's a skill. He that's had a skill. that skill. Yeah. And I don't know if he went off to do more companies like that. He may not. But but that's a skill set. That's like, a that, that's a thought process, right? right? Like I have a company I'm invested in right now. They literally have a monopoly. They're profitable. They're a great business. They're growing. But the pro I almost don't want them to sell because I could see the CEO hasn't quite created the perception that his business should be valued at a huge, huge number. And I'm afraid of what happens if he tries to sell. Because, <laughs> you know, part of the skill of exiting is creating the perception. You know, valuation is, is more art than science. It's something trade for 20 times sales, 20 times earnings, 20 times EBITDA. You know, per, or, per, or, flat out, or, or flat out perception. I mean, I, look, I've been an investor in a couple of companies without a lot of time and energy was spent on the perception and it worked. Yeah. They got another company to buy it because it's the perception. Yeah. No, that's, thank God for perception in some cases and I'm scared about perception in other cases, but that's a skill too. It's part of the exit skills. The exit skill has many skills. It's <laughs> negotiating, it's perception creating, it's... Um, presenting your company in the right way in terms of professionalism. It's knowing networking and knowing who to talk to and, and how to, um, how to, you know, it's a tricky discussion. Like when someone asks you, well, why do you want to, the first question they're is, why do you want to sell your company? You can't just say, cause I want to make a shitload of money and then get the hell out of here. You can't say that answer, even though that's the truth. You have to say, well, I, I feel like I, we would grow with a bigger team. We were taking on a lot yep. of new clients. We need help in infrastructure, which is true also, by the way. So just because the CEO leaves doesn't mean the company leaves. There's just, there's so much, I, I, again, I've probably never done a podcast where I've been so all over the place. So for that, I apologize to your listeners. No, but I've I, been all over. So I, I think um, there's so much opportunity. Like, like we're living arguably in the greatest time in life, right? Like there's just opportunity everywhere. I could talk to you for five hours about opportunity and your guy I know wants to wind this up. Um, <laughs> we're just talking about one little side of the business. Like I, I just got back from this retreat. It's like, it's, like a, um, it's called the Blue Pearl and I basically went hiking for a week. One of the guys I hiked with, you know, you talk to people when you're doing your hikes and as you're suffering together on these hikes and um, what do you do? He's like, oh, well, 
he, he built this huge business. And part of what he does is he's a professor who teaches at Stanford. Oh, well, what do you teach? We teach people how, we teach these MBA kids how to buy businesses. So, you know, rather than start a business, you know, it's a lot easier to buy a business. So we teach them how to buy businesses between real, roughly 10 to $25 million. And then we have a fund that funds these kids. I'm going to that school. This is right. This is a class he teaches at Stanford. He goes, then we have, a, I have a fund separately with my partners. And we, so we teach this class that teaches them how to buy these businesses. And then we fund them. And, and I go, walk me through that one more time. Like, this is just a quick little hike, right? He goes, well, look, a lot of these businesses are, you know, which is happening across America. You've got people who built these businesses and now they're in their fifties and their sixties and they want to retire. So they've built these businesses that are doing 10, 15, $20 million. And he gave me an example of an ambulance business. He's like, you know, so th- like we just helped this kid buy this nice $15 million ambulance business. So we put the money in, he's going to run it. He gets a percentage of it. And I go, he's explaining this to me. And I go, I, I bet the return on these investments is, is, is really good for you, right? Like, and, and, and more consistent. He goes, oh my God, completely. He goes, uh, he's like, versus doing these startup businesses where maybe you get your money back, we're putting money into businesses that have cash flow, they're built, yeah. and then we teach these kids how to clean these businesses up, run them, and then they sell them again. And he's like, so we make money. He's like, every time we're buying these businesses, we're making money. And I go, so now I start asking more questions, right? Because I'm like you, I'm totally curious. So what age are these kids that you're backing to buy these businesses? He goes, like, you know, between 25 and 32. I go, like, because he's super specific. Right? I go, well, what if, what if you're 35? He goes, 35, it's too old. Really? This, this, is what, this was his belief. He goes, we, we, we need them coming out of school, super hungry, and so it's 25 to 32. I go, so what if you're 50? Like, I'm like, what if you're 52 and you want to go buy one of these businesses? And he's like, okay, David, for you, maybe. But the point is, like, they dialed in. We're going to teach this program. He's like, and we don't, we don't handpick everybody from this class, we, but people learn about what we do. And like, you know, for every 10 people who come to us, maybe we pick one of these guys and we back them or gals. And I just thought there's a whole nother path on how to build wealth as an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, there's so many paths out uh, there. Oh yeah, people will miss out on that completely. Like what, take, take what you described to another level. You don't need 10 to 25 million. You can buy a laundromat here, a laundromat there, a laundromat here. Uh, pay for new equipment out of cash flow. Now the business is worth more. Combine them all together. Now you have a roll-up of laundromat. So that is worth more. So now you've done two things to increase the multiple. Now you just sell it. <laughs> so pay the bank, mo- the bank, the money back that you borrowed, and now you have the cash to buy it. Do it, do it again. Yeah, and I just I think realize wherever you are today. If you don't like where you are, you can change it. Right. There's a thousand things. To there's do. just. There's nothing that can't be figured out. Figured out. You're probably friends with Marie Forleo too. I would imagine. Do you know her? We, we email. We haven't. Uh, oh, yeah. You, got, you guys got to meet each other. She, she, she wants to. She mentioned she wants to come on the podcast. She, 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 should, come, she should come on your podcast with her. I read the book. It's amazing. I gave her a testimony for it. It's called um, "Everything's Figureoutable," <laughs> right? Like, and it's such a great concept because the truth is that everything's figureoutable. You know, like Tony Robbins used to always say, like anything you want to do, somebody's already mastered it. And you can just model the master. Yeah, that is that is told you. That's why I do a podcast. <laughs> and, and this is what you've done to get better at everything you do. Like yeah. I know you're big, ch- you're huge in chess, and like yeah. you studied the masters. Yeah. Um, you probably have studied people on how to be great at doing podcasts. Yeah, yeah. And, and now also, you're studying people on how to be a comedian. Yeah, right? yes. We've had tons of comedians on the podcast. Yeah. So, so it's great. 
Hey, but, I appreciate you having yeah. me on the show. I know you got to wrap up. It's we're gonna go home and do our Fourth of July stuff. So well. David, thanks once again. Second time on the podcast, or the first time was five years ago, I think. Uh, you know, the book is The Latte Factor. I definitely think this is, you know, whether this is an intro to you or a conclusion to you, this is a great <laughs> book for people to just pick up and read. It's a very quick read. It gets all of your principles. Uh, you know, I can go on about The Automatic Millionaire as well, but... I also think people should just check out your website, davidbach.com. Uh, and particularly, I like your 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 16 um, rules for financial health. Again, I think it would be really fun on a different occasion to have a a, a, a devil's advocate sort of debate. We on can each totally one do that items. later. I'll, I'll do that with you from Florence. Yeah, we'll do that over Skype. That'd be fun. You know, uh, and the last thing before I forget, because I'm so bad at pitching things. Um, but before I forget, we've got a podcast on the latte factor. So your listeners can go over to oh. the latte factor podcast. I did a very, a standalone podcast for this book. The first three chapters, you can listen to it for free. There's eight podcasts there. It's called the latte factor with David Bach. And then, um, we have a website, the latte where there's a big book promotion. You buy the book. We give you like a free course I created called start late, finish rich. It's like 10 hours of content. Uh, and that's all at the latte And I will say, and this, we started talking about this before the podcast. I think what you should do is, another podcast each episode's just five to ten minutes it's just you and i think the podcast should be called the 500 most important rules of financial success and you do f well, an episode a day five to ten minutes for 500 days in a row it sounds like a lot of work but i, I also it, go you know, it's just five to ten but, minutes. you probably wake maybe, up in the morning thinking <laughs> you know what I don't. I don't really need to make make the bed. That wastes yep. right. fifteen seconds of my time, or it takes waste two minutes of my time where I could be writing my first. I'll, you know, I'll take it up. I'll think about it. And then you guys, let me know if you like that idea. Maybe I'll go run with that. Um, James, you're awesome, buddy. It's good to see you. And yeah, by the thanks, way, David. I brought you books for your kids. So oh, excellent. I'll sign them for Bring your it kids. On. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.